know, the interesting thing about walls is that they're built, right? They're erected to promote safety, to create boundaries. But if you're not careful, if you build your walls too high, you might look up and realize it's actually a, a personal prison where nobody can connect and access the brilliance of who you are. And that's where we start today's conversation with this sense of what do we do to build more trust and safety and vulnerability within teams? And how do we lead in ways that are bottom up versus top down and challenge some of the quote unquote traditional models of leadership? Hey, it's Danny. I'm a principal development and retention expert, best-selling author, host of two of the world's most downloaded podcasts. And this show is for you, a ruckus maker, which means you've made three commitments. You're committed to investing in your continuous growth, challenging the status quo, and designing the future of school right now. We'll be back after a few short messages from our show sponsors. The secret to peak performance is not complicated. It's a plan on how to optimize the five fundamentals found in the Ruckus Maker Mindset Tool. This simple tool will help you consider where you are now and where you want to be in the next 90 days for each area. You can complete the tool in five minutes or less. Download it for free at betterleadersbetterschools.com slash mindset. How would you like to increase student talk by an average of 40%? More student ownership, more student discourse. Check it out for yourself by trying out TeachFX. Go to teachfx.com forward slash better leaders to pilot their program today. If executive functioning skills are integral to student success, then why aren't they taught explicitly and consistently in classrooms? I have no idea. I have no idea why that doesn't happen. But what I do know is that our friends over at Organized Binder have created a new course that will teach your teachers how to set up students for success via executive functioning skills. Learn more at OrganizedBinder.com slash go. Well, hello, Ruckus Maker. Today, we are joined by Dr. Rachel Roberts, who has served in various leadership roles in education for over 20 years as a teacher, instructional coach, assistant principal, principal, and principal supervisor. Rachel is passionate about women in leadership and believes that relational leadership is key to high-performing schools. Rachel lives with her wife, Jules, and a menagerie of pets and enjoys biking, reading, and fishing. Dr. Roberts, welcome to the show. Thank you, Danny. Thanks for having me. Uh, This is a pleasure. I'm really excited to have this talk today. And I, I know uh, that you're into challenging the status quo, right? And you've, you've seen it yield great results. Um, but it's not always easy. You know, with teams, they might be resistant to change and that kind of thing. Uh, and so I'm just curious, like, when you approach challenging the status quo, getting team buy-in and ownership, um, what, what works for you in terms of creating that safety, right? So people let their guard down just a little bit. Yeah, I I love that question. And I love working with teams. Um, You know, what I found when I was a a very brand new principal uh, is that I didn't work really hard to build the team. I sort of had this mental model of leadership that I could, you know, come on board and have all the answers and not ask a lot of good questions. 
And so to get teams to that high performing place to, to help them sort of, you know, buck the, the system, it really takes that authentic relational leader who connects really well with their staff, who invite their staff in to have uh, conversations and be part of the change. You know, so few people want change enacted upon them. You know, anytime you're just told, you know, do something different, it's sort of our human nature to say, whoa, you know, I've got some agency here. I want to do my thing. And the success that I had over the years has really been, you know, closely related to my ability to let down my guard, to bring my authentic self to the space and to allow others to do the same. In any thorny challenge I have ever had leading schools or working with principals, you know, I bring that problem right back to the team because it's our problem that we own together. So I think that's made me pretty successful. Yeah. It made my teams, I should really say the team's very successful. Absolutely. hundred hundred percent on that. And, you know, I'm sure you felt the shift when you were able to show up more authentically and that kind of thing. But do you have any specific examples just to share from your own personal leadership story that, you know, a ruckus maker listening might relate to and say, oh, that's what it looks like to finally be real? Yeah, well, you know, for women, you know, people of color, people in the LGBTQ community, it's often really hard to bring your full authentic self to spaces because some of those spaces aren't designed for it, right? You know, so that can make it really challenging. We're also challenged with these notions of like mental models, right? We have these mental models of leadership, very Western, very, you know, white male centric. And so if you're a woman, sometimes in those spaces, you'll bring what you think is that version of that, you know, sort of decisive or, you know, you know, heroic, whatever it may be. And it takes a lot of safety, both with the team and knowing yourself as a leader to be able to like, you know, fully bring yourself. I know I struggled with that a lot when I was first starting out and was sort of unsure of, you know, how much vulnerability do I let my team see? You know, what happens if you go to a faculty meeting and you don't have all the answers? You know, what if you're in a professional learning community and you don't have the right answer for your team? And, you know, I learned sort of the hard way. My first couple of years, you know, I don't think I jived super well with my teams because I was sort of performing a level of leadership as opposed to bringing my my authentic self. And what made the difference for me was really recognizing first that it wasn't working, right? I'm like wondering why everybody's sort of bucking my thoughts and sort of, you know, we weren't working together. And then did a lot of reflection on how to bring my authentic self to the space. And that comes through dialogue, right? Getting to know the humanity of your team and letting your team see the humanity of you. And that can make just such a world of difference. Yeah, 100%. You know, a lot of times I'll tell uh, leaders, often they're told, right, keep that personal and the professional separate. And you even, you know, you mentioned like having a sense of how vulnerable to be, right? But I think if if people are really afraid of being vulnerable, being real, the consequence of that is you are experienced like you're a robot, right? That you're not, yeah. you're not human. You're, you're alien in some respects. Like what is this? You know, they don't laugh at the jokes. They don't come to the birthday things. Like, I don't know. But uh, it, it really, it builds walls and that's not what we want at all as leaders. Yeah. And you know, I don't think we can blame people for that because of these mm. mental models, right? You know, we are, we are ingrained with these mental models of, of leadership. And so it does take, 
your own, you know, reflection and learning as a leader uh, to sort of how to break those models? You know, how do you move away from sort of a Western notion of leadership and get to a more, you know, sort of collaborative and community-based and to know that vulnerability is really how you build the teams because it's all about the relationship. You, you mentioned already in this you know, discussion that a lot of these mental models are sort of Western and white male centric. And, uh, you know, part of that impacts, you know, your ability to show up as real. But in addition to that, are there any other impacts you want to share with the ruckus maker listening when it comes to systems that are led predominantly by males and white males at that? Yeah, you know, I think it's sort of hard for us to even imagine what it would look like if we weren't in a system that was sort of dominated by white male culture, right? We just don't have a lot of examples of that. You know, our schools are, you know, and our school districts are really, you know, majority led by white men, you know, nationally. And so I think that's sort of a challenge for us to sort of, you know, even imagine, but what a great possibility for all of your ruckus makers to think about as they're building their schools and to really both educate themselves on other models of leadership. You know, what does authentic leadership look like? What does relational leadership look like? You know, can true transformational leadership be built from the ground up instead of the top down, right? Because so often we think, you know, it's got to be this magical, heroic moment. But really, it's those like little moments of like leaderful moments that happen where, you know, your teachers are the leaders, right? They can actually, when empowered, do the act of leadership probably more powerfully than any of us that are sitting in the chair. There's a lasso quote around that idea. And essentially, like basically when you empower people so much, right? And they say, look at what we accomplished. Look at what we did without realizing you were there helping, supporting, empowering, that kind of thing. That's a mark of true leadership. And it sounds like, you know, um, something that you're talking about here. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And imagine if that happened, right? Like imagine if we sort of decentralized that position of power and could reimagine what it really means for that participatory. And it's phenomenal. And it's really exciting because it's it's very uncharted in the way that we approach K-12 and pre-K-12 education today. And, you know, pulling on some threads and connecting some dots here, we were talking about sort of safety and uh, within a system earlier in our conversation. I know you've done um, some programs at Harvard and they like to use a lot of case studies. I don't know if it was an epiphany from one of those case studies, something you learned or whatever, but you are able to get people to tell you when you're thinking might be flawed, right? And when you are not like spot on. And I think that's, you know, that's what we're talking about, ground up sort of leadership. But it's also um, a mark of, of excellent leadership as well, because often people just, tell, they laugh at the jokes that aren't that funny, right? <laughs> they tell you, you're thinking like, wow, you, Danny, yeah. what, you are a smart guy, yeah. right? And that's all you hear. You're, you're in this echo chamber. But yeah, what did you learn from the case studies? And how did you get people to tell you, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I love it. You know, the case study is such a great approach to to learning about things because it tells a story, right? And it, it actually gives you an opportunity to examine 
almost like a, a cube, you know, a three-dimensional cube, and you can look at a problem from all different sides. So I've really become a huge fan of reading case studies. There's this great one in particular about Mount Everest in 1996 um, when there was a failed expedition with these two climbing guides, Rob Hall and Scott Fisher. And, you know, the interesting about, the, well, it's a tragedy. First off, it's a tragedy. You know, they're both Hall and Fisher, the leaders of the expedition, you know, perished on the top of Mount Everest, but so did a couple of their clients in a Sherpa, right? So so the people that were were part of the team didn't make it. And it's an excellent opportunity for us to look at a case where ego got in the way. So first and foremost, the, you know, the climbing guides rushed the climb. They were They didn't get their team ready. They also didn't get their teams to a place where every person on the team knew their role, could give feedback, could call out things when they were going wrong. And then finally, they didn't, they didn't do their legwork to check on some things. And so the fatal part of it was, you know, they didn't check to make sure that between the Hillary Step, which is one of the last places on Mount Everest, before you get to the summit, they didn't check to see that the ropes were going to be there so that people could get up safely and back down. And that turned out to be fatal. And when you look at how the clients reflected on, on, on this tragedy, they talk a lot about not being able to speak up. They had a couple of moments where they felt, and they used words like uneasy, you know, unable to tell Rob Hall that, you know, he was sick he, and they didn't think that he should be leading, but they, he was in charge. So they followed what he said. And, and it turned out to be real tragedy. So when I read that case, I thought, you know, how can I apply this to my work as a school leader? We had just come off of getting a very uh, low state grade, despite the hard work that we had done. You know, my my team was really down in the dumps and what we'd been working on didn't really pan out. And so we started our pre-service training all around the story of Mount Everest. And I talked deeply to my staff about, you know, how important it is for them to speak up, to have a voice, to everybody to know their role. And that nobody's role outranked anyone else's. So, you know, if you're somebody whose job is primarily, you know, cafeteria safety, maybe you're, you know, you know, a lunch monitor, or if you're a custodian, we all have the same value and the same and and have the same level of voice. So, so you're empowered to speak up when things aren't going well in the cafeteria, which you know, and I think everybody that listens to your podcast knows what a what a rough cafeteria can look like if systems aren't in place and kids are kind of out of control. And that was really powerful. And then we kept that story thread going throughout the whole year. And so we would check in like, you know, we check in our ropes. Are there blind spots? Do you see, you know, know, where are we faulty in our thinking? And, you know, we structured our meetings to be much more about the rope team coming together as opposed to top down. So, you know, professional learning communities were focused more on, you know, what, what are we missing here? You know, where, where are we hitting the depth of a standard? Where could other things be getting in the way? And, and really sort of empowering the entire team. If car loop's not going well, it's not Dr. Roberts to solve it. It is the team. Let's bring it back to the team. And that turned out to be pretty successful. And at the end of that year, you know, we ranked in the top 3% of schools in the state for growth, which was really phenomenal. And we led our district in, you know, double point averages. And then we sustained that growth as a team through COVID and everything else. And so that was really, you know, so the power of taking a story or a case study and bringing it back. 
it's that's an excellent example too of of um you know using story to motivate inspire right get people to move and uh it wasn't a slide deck with a million bullet points and that kind of thing yeah. it was a story it was a story that people could you know sink their teeth into and it had metaphor right the rope checks and this kind of stuff that you could loop back to throughout the year so i appreciate that too because it's not about saying it once or even like five, 10 times. You got to say it a lot until you're sick of saying it. I appreciate so much how you communicated to everyone, you know, uh, from my vice principal to the custodian, there's equal value. All the voices matter uh, equally. And then, you know, you, you brought up the car loop example and how that's not Dr. Robert's problem to solve. It's our team. So think about that for a second, Ruckus Maker, right? Like if you build a culture like this, everybody's not necessarily looking to you for the answers. I'm, I'm sure at some, you know, they still do a bit because of the title, but they start to have the ownership like these are our problems to solve. And that to me just seems like a, a more easeful way of, you know, leading a school versus, you know, I got to figure it all out. So um, really appreciate that. My, my follow-up question though is like, Saying everybody has equal voice and value, right, is one thing, but people have to believe it, right? And that just, that's not going to get everybody to participate. One of my assumptions, so correct me if I'm wrong, like the first time that that person who hasn't spoken speaks up, it really has to be, you know, celebrated and that kind of thing in the spotlight, you know, so you get more of, of what you want. But uh, what am I missing in terms of like saying it, but people doing it? There's, there seems to be a bit of a gap at least in my mind. Oh, for sure. And that's because you've led groups of people. We've all, every, all of your listeners, all the ruckus makers have led groups of people. And it's not Pollyanna by any means, uh, but it's intentional. And uh, I think the intentionality, one of the tricks that I've learned over the years is, you know, the power of having protocols. So, you know, it's not just a free for all, but, yeah, you know, yeah. you might have a consultancy protocol where, you know, everybody has three minutes to think and then respond, you know, so that you don't have that dominant voice because we've all been in those meetings where, you know, <laughs> everybody else is ready to leave and, and you know, one person talks. So I, I would definitely say the intentionality. I would also say, you know, there is so much to be said about the informal check-ins that your leaders can do on a daily basis. You know, leaders that live in their office aren't, making those relationships. So, you know, it's it's being very intentional about taking two seconds with somebody in the hallway. You know, when you're doing your, before, you know, everybody arrives at the beginning of the day, you're doing your rounds and, you know, intentionally seek out somebody that you might not have talked much to that week. You know, hey, Mrs. So-and-so, tell me what you think about this. Oh, bring that up with your team and and really starting to make those sort of connections. You know, I think that those are really important pieces too to get everybody on board. Good examples there and giving it time. But I like the idea of protocols too, right? Because then you could just, you rely on that structure. People and, and people probably start to trust you a bit more too, because like, okay, this is how we do it. Let's talk about the ropes, you know, what's not working and so on and so forth. Cool. Well, Rachel, I am loving this conversation. We're going to take a quick pause to get some messages in from our sponsors. And on the flip side, I want to start digging into your research. What do you see in your classrooms? And how did you see it? As a principal, you can't be everywhere at once. So how can you help support every teacher in the building? With TeachFX, teachers can gather their own feedback 
without relying on classroom observations. The TeachFX instructional coaching app is like giving every teacher their own instructional coach whenever they want it. Ruckus makers can pilot TeachFX with their teachers. Visit teachfx.com forward slash better leaders to learn how. That's teachfx.com forward slash better leaders. I have never met an educator or a parent who does not want their child to develop executive functioning skills. They may not know the language around what these skills are, but they know they want their students to succeed. Having these skills is largely left up to chance. What's going on there? Research shows that executive functioning needs to be taught explicitly. All students need daily practice with organizational skills, time and task management, self-regulation, and goal setting. Lucky for you, our friends at Organized Binder have released a new self-paced course that will teach you how to teach these executive functioning skills and set your students up for success. Learn more at organizedbinder.com slash go. Teach your students executive functioning skills and set them up for success at organizedbinder.com slash go. All right, and we're back with Dr. Rachel Roberts, who has some very unique research. And I think one of the things you found, and again, always correct me if I'm wrong, uh, I think 70% of the workforce that holds a, a EDD, a doctorate in education, that's held by women, 70%, yet only 20%, 26% of superintendents are women. What's going on there? Oh, well, how much time do we have, Danny? We can take, you know, some time. This is your show. (laughs) Fantastic. Well, yeah, isn't that surprising? You know, so both the workforce, so if you think about the number of educators that um, are female, it's about 77%. And then the number of women who hold terminal degrees, you know, outrank men, you know, almost, you know, three three to one. And then on top of that, if you look at women of color, you know, that's the fastest growing demographic right now for terminal degrees. So, you know, that's pretty fascinating. When I started to think about my dissertation and what research I wanted to do, I reflected for a while on the fact that throughout my 20 years, I had only one female superintendent that I worked under. And I started to think, you know, why is that? Why is the top position in our districts typically held by white men? You know, I wanted, I wanted to know more. And I also felt like, you know, you couldn't use the argument that women didn't want the position when you had, you know, so many women getting those terminal degrees. So that sort of, you know, led me to look at women in the superintendency. Yeah. And there's that huge, you know, huge gap that exists. Why, why are, you know, I'm, I'm assuming they're applying, right? That women are applying to the position yet still not getting the job. Is that just a function of you know, overt racism and sexism or what, what, what are you seeing? Yeah. So, you know, so I, I had this, you know, reflection on we have lack of representation at the top. And I had this sort of, you know, hunch that it's not that the women didn't want the degrees. So when I started to look at what the literature had sort of said about it, you know, there was a lot of literature written about, you know, barriers to, to, to women, women's leadership and the superintendency. There was also a lot of information about like, you know, women, you know, are, are mothers. So, you know, they don't necessarily always want or have the ability to, you know, make that kind of leap and take on that kind of kind of role. But I still thought that was just way too generic and way too easy to dismiss such a such a, you know, 
huge gendered gap in the role. And so I interviewed 18 women who had made it to the final round of superintendent search and selection, but didn't get the role because I wanted to know, you know, they're getting to that final interview, but they're not getting the job and what could be happening there. And I was really surprised, Danny, at what I found. You know, I found in their stories examples of overt sexism. And this occurred in 2021. So I did my research in 2021. They were very recently you know, in the interview chair. And some of the examples that the female candidates shared with me uh, were things like, you know, getting feedback that they didn't smile enough during the interview, or they should wear lipstick, or they should maybe tone down their personality a little bit, or maybe wear, wear something different. And then I, what was even more surprising were moments of this notion of like gendered and racialized gendered sort of communication. So it was the intersection of both gender and race. A one woman who I interviewed, she was a woman of color, was asked by the school board during her interview if she could lead on behalf of all children or only children of color. And that was in 2021. I wish I could say I'm surprised, right? And and it starts sort of like this righteous anger inside me, right? And I don't necessarily always know what to do with that. So what what would you say to a ruckus maker listening who wants to challenge a system 2021, even 2023? And in the future, as people listen to this episode, people will still be saying stuff like that. What can we do? Well, you know, I agree with you. It should make you angry. And I'm glad that you've got that sort of that feeling because I do too. And I hope that folks that read my work get that. And we also know that we're challenged. I sort of talked about this at the beginning. We're challenged with these mental models and the folks that are in the position of power. So, you know, typically it's a elected school board. You know, they're making decisions based on their mental models. And one of the things that the women that described that I spoke with was that they'd have great first round interviews and then their second round interviews, you know, the school board got a little bit more, you know, business-like and tough and then it didn't go their way. So for your ruckus makers, first, just knowledge is power, right? Even if we can't change the system today, if we know that the system exists, we can slowly start to dismantle it. So I think that's the first thing, right? So so the knowledge. The second thing is I'm sure everyone who's listening to this podcast knows somebody that's under their purview and on their team or in their building or in their network that could use a little lift, you know, and could use a little opportunity and could really benefit from seeing themselves in a different light to sort of challenge those mental models. So, you know, marginalized team members who who might not see themselves sitting in the principal chair need to be invited. You know, those are the people we need to seek out and put on our leadership teams. Yeah. What I hear you saying is sort of like calling out their gifts, right? The, The aspirational, the future them that they might not be seeing Potentially, who knows, but by you speaking that right into their life, it might change a little bit of their trajectory, potentially. Is that right? Yeah. And then and also be aware of your bias so that you don't miss their gift. For sure. Right? Because okay. sometimes we have those mental models that we don't even know it. Mm-hmm. And so really challenging. Am I always seeing gifts in a certain, you know, subset of my team? Yeah. Are they people that, that look like me and think like me? Or are they people who are completely divergent? 
And again, I think that's intentionality, right? Like you have to approach that intentionally uh, because we all have blind spots and those blind spots are still going to be there. We have to be working actively to dismantle those as well. Got it. I know your work talks about highly qualified female leaders going into the interview process confident and then experiencing some drift, right? From who they truly are. We're back to this like showing up real and authentic again. What can these, you know, leaders do to combat the drift? Yeah, that was one of the most fascinating sort of, you know, storylines that emerged from, you know, my my opportunity to talk to so many women who'd been through this experience. And it was pretty universal, which was interesting. You know, first off, you know, the women were smacked in the face with this notion of meritocracy. And we're given this storyline through our whole lives that if you work really hard, you're going to get what you deserve. You know, we're, we're the land of the free, the home of the brave. And we can all, with hard work, you can achieve things. And and really that doesn't take into play all of the systems that prevent it, right? And there, there are a lot of systems that actively work against um, people, especially women, people of color, LGBTQ. And so as the women were going deeper in to their experiences with interviewing, they found themselves drifting from their authentic self to try to meet what energy was being put out by the school board members during interviews. And um, I think it's applicable also probably to, to the principal interview, right? I mean, they're, they're all sort of, you know, breaking through, through that. Um, and as they drifted from themselves, they got a little bit more businesslike and a little bit less relaxed. They would sometimes meet the level of energy. So, you know, they'd have these great, I think I talked about this earlier, those great first run interviews. It's community-based. People are loving. They do the, all those things. And then that final round, when the interviewing may get a little tougher, they found themselves not being themselves. And that impacted future interviews, you know, so then they would go to their next interviews uh, a little bit more business-like and sort of be in this, you know, sort of iterative feedback loop. But one of the things that people listening, especially if they aspire to, uh, you know, lead a big district or a small district or they want to get into the principal chair, is that knowing that this will happen helps empower you to sort of fight against it. So if you know what to expect, you can plan for it. It doesn't mean that it's not going to happen, but you're going to have maybe some tools. I've coached a lot of folks into, especially a lot of women into leadership positions. And during that time, you know, I really work with them on the power of having the story, you know, like, you know, being able to take a question and make it relatable. And that helps fight the drift, right? So if you go prepared, ready with some stories about things that truly have happened, as opposed to trying to give the textbook the answer or the business-like answer, or thinking back to your, you know, masters in leadership and, you know, what should I talk about with budgeting, you know, or what should I talk about with facilities management, uh, but really have a, a genuine story that helps you stay more authentic and relatable. Because unfortunately, we can't change the system yet, but what we can do is help the people gain access. Here we are talking about story again. Yeah. For some of these leaders, right, they, they're obviously very successful interviewing for the superintendent position, that kind of thing. And uh, this might be, you know, one of the first no's, right? A rejection that they haven't experienced before. That can be tough. I can only imagine. So do you have any tips for leaders in that position in terms of how to bounce back? 
Yeah. And you know, when you reflected a couple of minutes ago about that sort of, you know, feeling frustrated with the system and like, you know, your your knowledge then, you know, built it. And in some ways it's really unfair that folks have to bounce back, right? Like, but also it's the way we learn, right? We learn from failure. We talked at the beginning about the case study with 1996 Mount Everest. That's a great story of failure, right? Because we can learn so much from it. And so I think helping anyone that's heading into a high stakes sort of job interview process, first off, know that, you know, it's going to take time. Uh, For the women that I interviewed, now this is not fully generalizable, but, you know, they eventually did get to a superintendency, but it took like uh, an average of 5.5 tries. And each try you sort of learn to do better and you learn a little bit more about how the system is created. And so having that resiliency to bounce back and you know, sort of recognize that it's going to happen is really important. And, you know, while it's unfair that our systems are built the way that especially more often than not, you know, women, people of color, LGBTQ folks are going to get more no's than a white male. It doesn't mean that they're never going to get a yes. And just knowing that sticking it out can get you there. Thank you. So, Rachel, if you could put one message on all school marquees around the world for a single day, what would your message be? Well, I, you know, I love this question and thank you so much. I would definitely have all are welcome here. I am about inclusive leadership and I'm about inclusive schools. You know, I want every child to be able to come in the door and fully actualize their authentic self. That goes from, you know, children who are, have, you know, non-binary gender identity. That means that, you know, children wouldn't be worried about, you know, pulling out their, their lunch at the lunch table because they might eat kimchi, right? Like all of the different things that you could bring that are fully you, I would definitely say, you know, oh, we all are welcome here. And how about building your dream school? If you had no constraints in terms of resources, your only limitation was your ability to imagine. How would Rachel build this dream school? What would be your three guiding principles? Yeah, so, you know, the marquee would say, you know, we're all welcome here. And, you know, it would be a school that very much challenged the status quo and empowered everyone to be a learner. You know, so everyone would be empowered to, you know, to learn, to question. And finally, you know, I think it's really important for us not only to build schools where we, you know, bring knowledge to students, but that we co-create and that, you know, every learner and every person on that campus is seen as somebody who has value, who has, you know, unique cultural identities, and who helps us make a tapestry of learning in a way that, you know, sometimes we're just, you know, especially right now in today's day and age, we're not necessarily valuing that. And and that would definitely be my ideal school. You mentioned uh, a ruckus maker reading your work. Where could they find out more about you? Yeah, so they can find my work on antioch.edu. That's where I did my graduate work. I'm on LinkedIn, so I'll, I'll send, make sure that I give you those those links. And yeah, so I, I'd love for folks to do that. Brilliant. And we'll have them linked up for you in the show notes. So we discussed a lot today, Rachel. It was a, a really great episode. And thank you for having the conversation with me. 
of everything we discussed, what's the one thing you want a ruckus maker to remember? Oh, that's a great question. So, you know, I think that the most important thing for your ruckus makers out there is to never stop learning and to, you know, find those stories, find those stories that align to their authentic selves and to also recognize that every one of your staff members you know, needs to be able to bring their true authentic self. And they can only do that if you do that. And so that takes that intentionality. And that takes a lot of thinking on your part around, you know, who am I? And, you know, how can I intentionally connect with everyone to make a school, to make a community, a place where they can do that themselves? Thanks for listening to the Better Leaders, Better Schools podcast, Ruckus Maker. How would you like to lead with confidence? swap exhaustion for energy, turn your critics into cheerleaders, and so much more. The Ruckus Maker Mastermind is a world-class leadership program designed for growth-minded school leaders just like you. Go to betterleadersbetterschools.com slash mastermind. Learn more about our program and fill out the application. We'll be in touch within 48 hours to talk how we can help you be even more effective. And by the way, We have cohorts that are diverse and mixed up. We also have cohorts just for women in leadership and a BIPOC-only cohort as well. When you're ready to level up, go to betterleadersbetterschools.com slash mastermind and fill out the application. Thanks again for listening to the show. Bye for now and go make a ruckus. 